they're retweeting real real news articles mixed in with maybe websites that slant one way or the other. They're posting memes that are not 100% false, but are not 100% true either. Video taken out of context is also a huge problem. So when we talk about misinformation and disinformation and social media manipulation, really we need to be thinking on a level of an ecosystem rather than a one-off piece of content. And it's still incredibly important to debunk those one-off pieces of content, but when it comes to sort of understanding the problem, we need to have a broader scope. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 16th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Jane Litvinenko, a senior reporter at BuzzFeed News who focuses on disinformation. If you use Twitter regularly and have looked at the platform during major media events, disasters, protests, you name it, you've likely seen her enormous tweet threads where she debunks hoaxes and misinformation. Recently, she's turned her debunking skills toward misinformation and disinformation around the coronavirus pandemic, reporting on the various fake experts, as she calls them, peddling misleading stories about the virus, and the long half-life of the conspiratorial pandemic video. She's also written on the rise of disinformation for hire, PR firms that turn to disinformation as a marketing tool. So what is it like to report on disinformation and misinformation in real time? How can journalists help readers understand and spot that bad information? And is there any cause to be optimistic? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 16th. Jane Litvinenko on debunking the disinformation garbage fire. So Jane, thank you so much for coming on. To start off, we wanted to ask the the most basic question, which is just how would you describe your beat? <laughs> it's maybe a basic question, but it's also a complicated one. So I write about disinformation and I write about social media manipulation. And this can sort of mean a different thing at different times. So during breaking news situations, we look for hoaxes that are going around in that sort of information vacuum and we uh, act as a fact checker, we debunk them. Uh, but outside of breaking news situations, we do investigations of uh, entities that might be using social social media for nefarious means. So whether that's using false accounts or automated tools or uh, fake amplification, and we're trying to sort of uh, investigate the networks uh, that are attempting to manipulate our social media environment. And so how, how long have you been working on this? I imagine it's, it's probably changed a fair amount since you started. Yeah, I started at BuzzFeed in November 2016. Um, so we're coming up on four years. Uh, and- That's a trial by fire. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely was. And the beat has changed quite a bit. The overall literacy of people who are thinking about disinformation, reading about disinformation, investigating disinformation has increased. Uh, But with that, so have the different techniques that bad actors are using to uh, attempt to manipulate social media. So over the last three and a half years, the environment has gotten a lot more complicated. 
And by complicated, do you mean like a dumpster fire? Like how (laughs) – one of the things we're sort of exploring in this series um, is, you know, how bad are things? Like there's this sort of general sense at the moment people are pretty freaked out about the information space and the the sort of post-truth era. Uh, As a a reporter that works on this, you know, what's your prognosis? How how grim is it out there? You know, with disinformation and social media manipulation – In 2016, the U.S. just started learning about sort of websites that pose as news organizations that create completely fake stories from scratch, right? They're they're completely made up. Pope endorses Donald Trump is sort of one of the most famous ones. And as, as we dug more into this problem, what we've learned is that it's not really just falsehoods that we should be watching out for, but sort of entire campaigns. And the reason why we talk about Russia so much, even though they're not, by far not the only player in this space, is because we understand their campaign and how it worked a little bit better. So instead of just blasting out falsehoods, what Russia did was build up audiences using genuine memes, genuine videos, genuine information, genuine engagement on social media, and then sought to mobilize those audiences. That's a strategy that we've seen more and more uh, over the last few years. And as a matter of fact, one of the more worrying things is we've really seen a professionalization of disinformation. Almost every takedown announcement from Facebook or Twitter now includes a PR firm or an advertising agency that is tied to social media manipulation. So the sophistication of these campaigns has really grown while those pure fakes that we sort of became aware of at the beginning, they've really faded because they're one of the easiest things for social media companies to say, no, stay off of our platform. So tell us a little bit more about the sort of disinformation for hire as uh, as you described it. Like, how does that work and why do people do it? So disinformation for hire is an investigation that we at BuzzFeed published along with my colleagues at the beginning of this year. And we looked at how these PR firms are conducting different online information campaigns. And there's a few sort of reasons why... Um, why people would use a PR firm to do this. And part of it is just self-promotion. So something that we saw in my home country of Ukraine is that a lot of politicians during the election seemed to have gotten a boost from uh, whether it's comments or memes or videos or sort of content on social media that promoted them and slogged their opponents. And I say seemed to have gotten a boost because the main reason to use a PR firm is to hide who the client is. So as we investigate, the best we can do is sort of trace back where the content may be coming from, which PR firm may be engaging from it. And that in itself is tricky. But in order to go one step further and say who hired the PR firm, it's even trickier. It creates a real barrier between the person who wants to do the social media manipulation and the person who's actually doing it. We we see this a lot, particularly we've seen the UAE engage in it uh, several times or sort of pro-UAE content uh, use PR firms several times. We've definitely seen similar things with pro-Iran content. We see a lot of that 
um, in the Philippines as well. And that's absolutely a problem that we need to be thinking about going forward into the election. So can I ask you, sort of, how much of a sense do you have of how easy it is to define the problematic material that we're concerned about here? And how much does that match up, but like your definition of it and what you're concerned about when you dig in on these investigations versus what perhaps the platforms are concerned about and the definitions that they have and whether they themselves have lots of definitions? Like what are the kinds of markers that you're looking for to distinguish between like legitimate PR and legitimate political activism and coordination and mobilization and this stuff that just sort of seems uh, really bad? Yeah, it is really tricky um, because because this idea that, you know, one fake will convince somebody to vote one way or the other is sort of has really permeated the discourse where really it's the ecosystem that we need to be looking at. Right. Like you're not going to see a meme of, you know, Putin riding on top of a bear waving the Russian flag saying, like, vote Trump, right? Like, that's not how disinformation works. What you are going to see is personalities, social media personalities that are built up over time um, that might be engaging in fairly innocuous content, right? They're retweeting real real news articles mixed in with maybe websites that slant one way or the other. They're posting memes that are not 100% false, but are not 100% true either. Video taken out of context is also a huge problem. So when we talk about misinformation and disinformation and social media manipulation, really we need to be thinking on a level of an ecosystem rather than a one-off piece of content. And it's still incredibly important to debunk those one-off pieces of content. But but when it comes to sort of understanding the problem, we need to have a broader scope. And it seems like social media companies have begun to understand that over the last year. One of the um, most standard terms in in this field is inauthentic coordinated behavior. That's a term that Facebook uses to go after uh, online campaigns that may be out of the scope of their policy. And inauthentic coordinated behavior is 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 a bit of like a mouthful, right? Like <laughs> um, it's not. It doesn't really slide off the tongue. But um, essentially, it means you're using a fake component to promote a message. And Facebook is not necessarily concerned with what message you're promoting. That's for the fact-checking partners to take care of. It's concerned about what methods you're using to promote that message in the first place. So this interplay is really, really tricky. And it's partially what makes talking about this problem such a complicated scenario. And we especially saw this play out during COVID, right? Um, COVID-19 is really the first time when platforms in a very strong manner decided to crack down on health mis- and disinformation in a way that we haven't seen them do before. And that's partially because they introduced, uh, not necessarily introduced a new criteria, but highlighted this criteria of imminent harm. They've decided that information on their platform that causes imminent harm will now be something that they specifically look at. But that doesn't mean that these platforms have necessarily cleaned themselves up. And now, as the discourse around COVID-19 has become more and more politicized, 
that definition of imminent harm doesn't necessarily always fit with content that has the potential to cause imminent harm, but is also extremely political. So it's not necessarily something that Facebook goes after um, because of you know freedom of speech. So when we think about this problem, there's so many different facets. It's very tricky to wrap your head around and you used the words garbage fire earlier um and uh you know they're not misplaced here (laughs) okay so much to follow up on there um but i can't let coordinated inauthentic behavior go past without commenting on it because i've been harping on about this and i will try and keep it short because we could be here all day i get very frustrated by this this phrase and how like it sort of sounds so technical and objective but when you dig into it, um, there's a lot of sort of subjective judgments there. And I guess the, my question is sort of what's your relationship with platforms around that kind of thing? And how often is it that you find something that you're like, this looks suspicious, it looks coordinated, it looks inauthentic, and there's definitely some behavior involved. So, you know, guys, can you please take it down? And they go, no, that doesn't meet our definition. Um, yeah, that definitely does happen. And it's... It, um... It's really tricky to understand what this definition entails or how the platforms define this. So one example, me and my colleague, Craig Silverman, who's, who's I believe has been on your podcast before, last year we found a campaign that we thought would fit the coordinated inauthentic behavior label. And the campaign was run by Robert Hyde, who was running for Congress. He was associated with all of these Facebook pages that looked like they were Facebook pages locally supporting Trump, but in reality uh, were all tied to him. And we saw this because they were all sort of posting similar content. At the same time, they all had similar characteristics. It's sort of when you put them side by side, the picture became pretty clear. And originally, when we asked Facebook about this, it didn't fit into their uh, coordinated and authentic behavior policy. And only a few months later, when the case got more airtime and more press, were these pages taken down. So, so these definitions, you're you're right to harp on about them because there's no sort of hard standard. There's no very clear guideline uh, that says, okay. In order to qualify for inauthentic coordinated behavior, we it needs to include things X, Y, and Z. And there's a real question of how that judgment is being made and whether we're going to get clarity on what Facebook is looking for ahead of the election so that reporters better understand when we investigate these stories, what is allowed on the platform and what isn't allowed on the platform. So I know Evelyn wants to follow up here, but I, I just I, I can't resist the the siren song of Robert Hyde. So just for for any listeners to whom that name might sound familiar, that that is the Trump associate who seemingly threatened and uh, hinted that he was stalking the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. Which Jane, am I right that that's how the case started getting press? Um, all those pages because of his prevalence in the in the impeachment scandal. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah. 
nuts. Yeah, I, I just sort of wanted to say, you know, to, to be fair to Facebook, you know, they do have some fairly detailed and sort of technical rules around this. Um, and as you said, it's it can be quite narrow. And, you know, I, I would like them to be more detailed and objective too. Um, but it's kind of the phrase has taken on this this life of its own and it exists in the popular imagination as sort of this this thing and it doesn't necessarily match up. And I think it goes back to that sort of thing that you were talking about earlier about trying to understand this uh, as an ecosystem rather than piece of content by piece of content. Because very often these campaigns, you know, each individual piece of content is not problematic in and of itself, but all put together, there's something sort of malicious about it. And I, I was wondering, do you think that people generally understand that aspect of it? And how do you go about communicating that to people? Because I imagine it's fairly easy to debunk a single piece of content. Or I mean, no, I don't want to cast uh, shade on your work. I'm sure it's very difficult, but you know, much easier to fact check something in particular, but much harder to sort of fact check an, an ecosystem, like you say. So how do you go about communicating that? No, that's a really good question, and it's a particularly tricky one, because after a few years of working on this beat, I understand sort of what inauthentic coordinated behavior is. But if I were to call my grandma, uh, which I have done before, and say, yeah, I've been investigating inauthentic coordinated behavior today, she's going to be like, Jane, what are you talking about? Right. So these this, this really makes these terms and the sort of trickiness of these definitions makes it um, more difficult for the average user to understand uh, how their attention is being used and what this engagement actually means. It's, it's really tricky to sort of explain, to say, you know, um, be careful sharing this totally innocuous, maybe funny meme about, I don't know, how nature is healing or, or something, because you don't know the page that it came from. And so for us, we really attempt to sort of show the reader our work and uh, give them the ability to retrace our steps if if need be. Um, and also give people the tools of explaining what it is that we're looking for. You know, when was an account created? Um, has the image it's using as its main image uh, been used before? Is it somebody else? Are they posting, you know, uh, 12 times an hour? Um, there's a lot of that goes into it. And for average users, it takes a lot to build up that level of social media literacy. Now, that level of social media literacy, anecdotally, in our own audience, I absolutely see that people are much more aware of what they should be looking for or how to sort of uh, verify things online. But an individual user doesn't necessarily have the power to say, I'm looking at a campaign here. An individual user, when something, when they scroll past something on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Instagram, which is also a channel that we've seen weaponized a lot, um, they don't necessarily think like, okay, hold up, wait a second, I'm going to fact check every single piece of content that I engage with. No, you know, no, that's, that's not what happens. You sort of, you, you lie in bed in the middle of the night and you hit play on your friend's Instagram stories and those stories go uh, until you fall asleep and whatever memes you see, you know, you see them or whatever memes you repost, you repost them. That's just 
asking users to be uh, vigilant with every single piece of content that they come across on social media is not a realistic solution, which is why social media companies um, and their action on this is such a, such a key part of this puzzle. So speaking of showing your work, one of the ways that you've done that that is really fascinating is by sort of putting together these Twitter threads in real time when there's a crisis moment so recently with the pandemic or when there are protests, something like that, where you'll tweet out instances of misinformation and disinformation and debunk them kind of in real time and add to the thread over time, which is a fascinating way to sort of watch journalistic work um, in motion. And I definitely recommend, you know, that our, our listeners take a look at your Twitter feed to, to see that happening. But I'd love to know just sort of what's your, what is it like to work in that form? And how do you think about uh, the sort of dynamics of using the Twitter thread as a journalistic form for that kind of debunking versus writing it up in a BuzzFeed piece later on? So uh, most of the time we do both uh, the Twitter thread and an article alongside it that keeps track of all the hoaxes that we've seen around that event, uh, whether it's the Kwasim Soleimani death or the pandemic, which I think we've had like two or three threads about, or the police brutality protests, which we've also been um, using that format for. And we started that format sort of kind of accidentally when we look at mis- and disinformation, something that becomes abundantly clear is that we don't always have access to the communities that people are part of online, and we may be missing things. I am in Canada, so uh, and, and yet I cover most of the U.S., so I'm very aware that there might be blind spots that I'm not hitting. And uh, initially, this this idea started with just asking people for help, asking people to send in what they see. And and that goes alongside sort of um, research that we do independently as well. And what it does is it, it allows us to sort of have a conversation with our readers and explain to them that this is a problem that... Uh, one person can't solve, right? Which is why I say that anecdotally, our audience seems seems to have gained a lot of social media literacy because we're when at the beginning when we did these threads, people sort of weren't sure what we were asking, they weren't sure what we were looking for, um, but they would still send in hoaxes. Whereas now, when I get tips, uh, when I ask for them, people say, "All right, here's a meme that I found. Here's a reverse image search that I got. Here's a fact check." that I may have seen. Here's the video that this may have been taken from. You know, they really much better understand how this thing could have even been manipulated in the first place. So it sort of serves as both a a showcase of how wide the problem is. There are many threads that I've done that go beyond like 30 pieces of disinformation we've debunked, 50 pieces of disinformation we've debunked. It allows people to have something to send back to their group chats or their families or their friends or their frenemies or their whoever, uh, their yoga teachers in the case of COVID or like their like you know their 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 extended network. Uh, my apologies to to yoga teachers, um, <laughs> but. Um, it allows them to sort of be more involved in this process and also see the compilation of 
of what other people are dealing with online. Uh, so it's 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 become this like very interesting, almost collaborative way to speak to our audience and teach them about how we do online verification, but also give them something concrete to read, to understand, to see uh, the vastness of this problem. You know, honestly, that might be the first answer in this series that has like really given me genuine cause for optimism, like this idea that people are getting much more literate and uh, competent in the way that they're experiencing this this stuff and, and that they themselves are upskilling. That's a good sign. That's something that um, I can hold on to. Um, also, having watched you do these threads, um, they're, they're pretty incredible. And it just sort of, I, I, I watch them happening and I like feel for you. It sort of feels like it must be that you're getting absolutely hammered. In those situations, how do you triage incoming? Like, how do you decide what kind of stuff really needs to be debunked as a high priority, what you're going to spend time on? Because there must be a lot to choose from and how do you decide that this this question of like when does something go over the line that it justifies you giving it extra oxygen in order to debunk it oh that is a tricky tricky question that is never gonna have a hard answer so there's a few different things that we look at to understand whether we should amplify it through our reporting. One thing is how much engagement it got. It's a pretty sort of baseline metric that we can look at, but it's not a perfect metric because it can get, something can get a lot of engagement, but not necessarily have gone out of its online community. So that's one metric that we keep in mind, but not always. The other thing that we look at is have any accounts uh, that can be considered influential accounts passed it on. So with the coronavirus, we saw a lot of verified accounts tweet uh, bad health information, for example, or uh, false information about the lockdown. We're like, okay, great. This is something that we absolutely need to dig into. If it has the potential for causing uh, physical harm, that's also something we look into. Again, using COVID as an example, false health information, we definitely erred on the side of debunking. Forced lockdown information, we definitely erred on the side of debunking. And if if something uh, has been sent to me multiple times over and over and over again, um, that's also a pretty good sign that a lot of people are seeing it and a lot of people are asking about it. So it is it re- it is a really really tricky measure, and I think it's one of the key responsibilities for reporters on this beat. It's something that um, almost everybody really really worries about. I, I I know that I worry about it a lot. Of you know when are we promoting a narrative versus when are we helping people understand what is going on around this narrative? But the other part of it is that with the social media ecosystem that we have. Uh, you don't really need news organizations for a narrative to go viral, which is why we look at those influential accounts. I I don't have as me- as big of an audience as a lot of other accounts on social media. So if somebody who who I know has an active following has posted something, um, that's absolutely a reason for us to look to look into it further. And so as you've been tracking mis and disinformation around the pandemic, like what are the general themes of the stories that you end up debunking? Are they like 
particularly do they tend to be sort of like geopolitical, like blame China or conspiracy theories or sort of medical disinformation? Is there are there any trends that you've noticed? Oh man, every theme um, we've, we've seen, we've seen everything. It's it's really interesting with the coronavirus because the longitude of the false information that uh, we've seen has has really started in January. Um, our first debunks were in late January, um, around this maybe twenty fourth or twenty fifth, and uh, at the beginning it was really all sort of arm's length information of hmm something's happening in China we're not quite sure what. And a lot of sort of falsehoods um, and out of context videos that we weren't able to verify that weren't really verifiable sort of flooded in and uh, we had to make heads or tails of it. And at that time, we really didn't know anything about the disease, right? There was just no information. We, we in, in many cases, didn't even know what a person who was sick with this disease looks like. We didn't know what treatment looks like. We didn't know what the symptoms were. There, there, there was almost no information at all. And that was a really, really tricky environment to debunk information in because you, you don't know what you don't know. Um, from there, when the virus uh, came to first to Europe and then to North America, we saw a lot of um, financially motivated hoaxes. So things like, um, you know, get rich quick schemes of buy thing X and it will cure you from the coronavirus. A lot of uh, herbal remedies, a lot of um, air purifiers, a lot of colloidal silver, my number one enemy, by the way, colloidal silver doesn't cure anything, but it's, it's sold as a cure for everything. And uh, at the same time, at the, from the beginning, we did see some politicization of the pandemic, but it's really this final late stage when the virus really, really hit the, the U.S., that the politicization in the U.K. and um, the rest of Europe, that the politicization of the pandemic um, has become so clear, and that the 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 information around it has become so deeply polarized. So, if we look at the mask discussion as an example, at the beginning. There were a few reasons why masks were not advised. One is because we just didn't know their effectiveness. And uh, the worry of the officials was that they would provide uh, false safety at a time when we didn't have a lot of science to tell us what happened, one, what happens if you wear a mask one way or the other. Whereas now we do have evidence that masks work. We do have evidence about how the virus behaves and sort of which things about the virus we need to be worried about, um, how it transmits. But because we're in this very political environment now, it's much trickier to go back on that less informed advice from earlier. And a lot of people have seized on this scientific evidence as a way of rallying their base, either for wearing masks or against wearing masks. And it has caused a lot of anger. And as a matter of fact, there was a very tragic case um, in France where a bus driver asked the passengers to put on masks before they get on the bus. And he was severely beaten um, and ended up uh, in the hospital 
with severe brain damage that eventually led to his death. And, you know, there's no way to predicting that that would be how the mask debate would go. But this flow of information and this use of information as, as a political tool has really marked this last third stage of coronavirus discourse, uh, coronavirus informational discourse. And it's going to be one of the trickiest for us to navigate through. So out of curiosity, so that if the the first stage is sort of, you know, confusion um, and the third stage is politicization, what's the what's the second stage in your view? Throwing pasta at a wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it really was, you know. Every, nobody nobody really knew what to make of it. So it was a lot of people trying to make money. It was a lot of people trying out different narratives. It really was just a sort of a, a, a pandemonium. Yeah. So, so speaking of pandemonium, <laughs> um, so we, we talked recently with Kate Starbird, who was talking about the this concept in crisis informatics about collective sense making. So, you know, people in crisis often uh, misinformation ends up spreading because people are just trying to make sense of a situation that's incredibly confusing and sort of grasping onto whatever information they have. So I I think it would be fair to say that some of the early discourse around masks falls into that. You know, people are just trying to figure out what they can do to protect themselves and their loved ones. So that's sort of one bucket of of, uh, coronavirus misinformation. And then on the other end, there's, you know, stuff that's out there uh, that is intentional, malicious disinformation that's being intentionally spread. So how do you divide between those things? Like, how do you understand that distinction? And how how do you think about drawing it as a journalist? And then I'm also curious how the uh, distribution has changed over time. Because from what you just said, it it sounds like we may have moved from sort of more collective sense-making to intentional political disinformation. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. And we did see intentional political disinformation early on, um, particularly with attribution of where the virus came from. Um, that that narrative didn't really take hold until mid-spring, but it started out in January. But the two parts of that, the collective sense-making and the sort of deliberate spread of of false information are pretty inextricable because disinformation doesn't exist in a vacuum. It latches on to confusions that people have. It latches on to existing narratives and existing divisions. Um, And a lot of those existing narratives and existing divisions come through collective sense-making. So really, it's, it's an interplay of both. And as these uh, narratives take hold as reporters, it's important to keep in mind that sort of um, wider context of not just that malicious disinformation exists, but also asking why does it work? Why does it work now? Why does it work in this environment? Okay, so you've thoroughly cured me of my optimism that I had momentarily earlier. I'm very sorry. (laughs) Um, So let's try again and go back to something else that you mentioned earlier about platform responses during the pandemic. Uh, And you talked about how they have, you know, really talked about 
imminent harm. And, you know, we've seen lots of responses about how they're clamping down a lot harder on false information during the pandemic because of this possibility of imminent harm and because misinformation in the context of a public health crisis can be so much more dangerous. And we've heard all of these announcements, and I'm just wanting to get a sense from you about whether the reality matches those announcements. Like, what have you seen uh, in terms of how the platforms have been operating during this period? Uh, Are they really sort of stepping up and doing a better job at clamping down? And and is that sort of, um, what's your assessment? That's a really tricky question because in order to be able to answer it, we really have to have a bird's eye view of the content that was put on the platform, the content that was removed from the platform. And that's research that's increasingly more difficult to do. Um, What we do know is that um, especially early on, platforms sort of were almost uncompromising with the false information that they either take down or downrank in their algorithms. But I think here it's pretty useful to look at the video Plandemic as a case study. Plandemic was this uh, video that was posted to YouTube and Vimeo, and it was a uh, sit-down interview with a woman named Dr. Judy Mikowitz, who um, for half an hour sort of made a lot of uh, unsubstantiated allegations, um, a lot of them surrounding uh, Dr. Fauci and some of them surrounding health advice health advice uh, we had at the time during the pandemic. You know, there, there were a couple of uh, fairly outlandish things like masks can make you sick and sand can cure the coronavirus. And different platforms had very different approaches to how that video worked. Um, so Vimeo pulled it down entirely. Um, every version of that video, they pulled it down. You know, I think that they... Uh, It seems like they've decided we don't want this on our platform. And that was that. YouTube also mostly pulled down uh, that video, but Facebook did not. Uh, Facebook pulled down versions of the video that contained that bad health advice, uh, like the masks thing and the sand thing. But clips of the video could still be shared on Facebook and on Instagram. And not only that, but uh, we did some research with First Draft, a a nonprofit anti-disinformation organization, and it showed that although the the popularity of the pandemic video in English declined maybe a week or two, uh, if I remember correctly, after it was posted to social media, uh, non-English versions had a much longer tail. So... Another researcher, Zareen, uh, from DFR Lab, found a dubbed version in Armenian that was the full video, uh, but it was dubbed over in Armenian and posted to Facebook, um, and Facebook didn't take action on that. So, so the different approaches from different social media companies have created this sort of loophole where certain platforms could be used to share the video and certain platforms couldn't be used to share the video. But then there's also this other tricky side where uh, the video being pulled down also allowed for the people who made it and for the people who shared it to say this is being censored. This is truth that 
that the platforms don't want you to hear. Make sure that you see it now. It created a sense of urgency around the same video. So so these policies, while effective in some cases, in particular with the fake cures, uh, that was something that uh, platforms cracked down to uh, very quickly. When it comes to what platforms call borderline content, like uh, not like this pandemic video, but um, borderline content that could really go either way, that contains some truths and some untruths, there's a bit of indecision there. And that indecision creates a loophole that can then be used for false information and misleading information to travel further. Yeah, I just want to underscore two things that you said that I think are particularly important. The first being that we just don't have the data for um, what's going on on these platforms. And I'm sort of seeing an emerging narrative about how, what a great job they're doing. Uh, And I certainly, you know, I, I don't dispute that they are really, you know, trying very hard to clamp down on this stuff in in many cases, but we don't really know how successful that is. And that's why, you know, free the data um, is is my constant refrain. Um, And the the second is, yeah, exactly. We need t-shirts. And um, the second one is about the global aspect, which I think often we can get get sucked into navel gazing but the the idea that this is sort of having global these are global platforms intrinsically global platforms and we need to keep that in mind but i wanted to sort of dig in on something that you mentioned at the end there about the 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 difference between like conspiracy theories and other kinds of disinformation and like in the context of the pandemic video where part of it was this sort of adversarial game of where it gets taken down and that just kind of proves the point um, in, in a way. And I was wondering how that affects your work and whether there sort of seems to be this idea at the moment that that conspiracy theorizing is getting more and more dominant and whether that is what you see and how that affects how you think about what you do. Yeah, um, it it does seem to be more dominant. Um, going back to the pandemic video that spread like wildfire, and I think uh, may have planted a lot of seeds of doubt in people who previously hadn't really thought about themselves as conspiracy theorists. Again, we're hard pressed to sort of understand the effect effects that this information has on an individual person. But I also really want to bring up the case of uh, Bill Gates as a pandemic villain, which is something that we've seen happen. So when you look at social media monitoring websites, uh, Crowdtangle is the one that we use, uh, mentions of Bill Gates up until early March were pretty minimal. Whereas uh, now um, we know that Bill Gates sort of being blamed for ever, almost everything, you name it, right? Especially within conspiratorial communities. And there's a really good example of how borderline content, uh, which is what YouTube calls it, um, around Bill Gates has put him to the forefront of being this coronavirus villain. Um, He did a Reddit AMA in which he mentioned um, the need to track people who have gotten a vaccine or who have immunity if uh, indeed there is a vaccine or if indeed there is an immunity, which is a big question mark. Um, And, you know, the vaccine has not been invented. Uh, Questions about coronavirus immunity uh, remain and need to be studied. But uh, first a fringe uh, conspiracy website and then a fringe uh, conspiracy YouTuber 
took this answer from the Reddit AMA and made it sound like Bill Gates wants to inject microchips into the global population in order to track them. Now, there's a few uh, few problems with that narrative. The first problem is that we actually don't have the technology to create microchips that are small enough to be injected into people. And the second problem is that if you want to track anybody in the world, you know, we have phones, um, we have social media. You don't need to go that far. That, that, that was a half joke. I hope it came off like that. Um, but this narrative really, really caught on. And when we brought YouTube's attention to this video, they said that it was borderline content and allowed it to stay up. Um, from there, there uh, began to be memes, short videos, old talks taken out of context or reframed that Bill Gates has done. And now, where at the beginning, he wasn't even thought about at all before. Uh, now he's this incredibly frequently mentioned figure on social media, who is vilified, like, like George Soros is vilified in this like very mystified way, you know. And, and that's a real example of how tricky it is to be able to look at this ecosystem and sort of watch it happen slowly um, and understand what those pivot points are for our online conversations, but platforms not necessarily taking taking that content down or removing it or working with each other to deprioritize it uh, because because it's conspiratorial content. And that's sort of that's a frequent path that it takes. So we're we're almost out of time, but uh, before we let you go, I wanted to ask. I think this is continuing uh, Evelyn's pessimism theme. <laughs> as we're as we're heading into the next few months, um, there's an election in the United States. There's obviously a great deal going on uh, with the pandemic and vaccine development. What are you? What do you sort of have your eye on um, in terms of disinformation and misinformation? Like what what is it that keeps you up at night in this space? Um, uh, well, a lot of things keep me up at night, uh, sleep, uh, remember that? Um, no, um, I think that one of the things that we really need to, uh, to be aware of is the, with the erosion of local news outlets, uh, we've also seen a rise of hyperpartisan news outlets and sort of websites that um, report the news in a politicized way that sort of fill the information void. Recently, we saw this um, map come out uh, that was created by the Neiman Lab um, off of research from uh, the Tau Center at Columbia University that showed how hyperpartisan news outlets sort of purporting to be local news outlets are now incredibly prevalent around the US. And the majority of these hyperpartisan news outlets that were identified, it was about 450 websites, and the vast, vast majority of them were leaning right. Um, the ones that were leaning right were targeting 
mostly swing states, but importantly, local populations. Whereas the 24 or so websites that were left-leaning were targeting more national populations. So as we think about the election and as we think about the information environment, something that's really important to keep in mind is that missing void that local news outlets have left behind and how those audiences may be getting scooped up on social media. Uh, it's, it's, it's useful to look at national narratives that are taking place around the country, but it's really those local narratives that we really need to worry about and that have a potential for impact. For example, during the anti-police brutality protests, something that we saw is a uh, hoax about how Antifa are coming to small town X or small town Y and will be there to cause violence. And um, this really great reporting from my colleague Anne Helen Peterson showed that a lot of towns took it seriously um, and really were afraid and took action uh, around this hoax that was presented to them. So as we go into the election as reporters, it's incredibly important for us to focus on local populations and not necessarily always look at the national conversation that's happening. I do hope that reporters educate their audiences as much as possible and show their work, um, because I think that's that's also an essential component here. And that's that's what's going to save Evelyn's optimism. <laughs> yes, poor one out for Evelyn's optimism. <laughs> I'm sorry to be such a Debbie Downer. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.